Springsteen's song, Factory, there is this line that you probably picked up. It goes like this. Through the mansions of fear, through the mansions of pain. Which is a pretty appropriate line for our podcast topics today. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for August 23rd, 2017. It is the dog days of summer, folks. And I guess most people in the U.S. or a lot of people are always thinking August about vacations and taking off of work. But for a lot of people, that's not a reality. And this is an even harder slog, not just in August, but throughout every working day for anyone working in a damn poultry plant. And also for the young people around the world, the masses of unemployed young people. Now, when Bruce Springsteen sang those words through the mansions of fear, it is what those people pass through every single day. The fear of not having enough money to pay the bills. The fear of telling someone if you work in a poultry plant, I'm hurt. I can't work today. I need a doctor. And then being told, no, go back to the plant line, to the poultry line, where those chickens are whizzing by every single second. And literally, those people are living in what Springsteen says are the mansions of pain. And it's the mansions of real pain that we start with today. I'm not going to preach to you that you stop eating chicken or meat in general. I stopped, basically, for reasons having to do with climate change, not about animals being eaten because, well, that's a whole nother topic which we may or may not pick up someday. But when you pick up that nicely wrapped chicken at the store next time, it would be great if in addition to all the pain that you might have thought that the chickens went through, you also understood the pain and suffering that human beings go through to put that chicken on your table. And we don't think a lot about that, about what workers go through to put food on our plate. Most of the chatter, in fact, is mostly about the welfare of animals, and I I get that. Chicken, you may know, is the most popular meat in the country. 
And the poultry industry is booming and profitable partly because it pays low wages and has very consciously set up its operations going back many years in the South, where it can exploit workers, especially immigrant workers. Just in Arkansas, for example, a survey by the Northwest Arkansas Workers Justice Center, which just does really terrific work, they found that two-thirds of the workers in poultry in the state were non-white and immigrant. 20% were African-American, 46% were Latino, and 21% were Asian Pacific. And in that industry, they found, discrimination is rampant especially aimed at women, some of whom have actually urinated on themselves because they were not granted the same breaks that men got when they needed them. That's what the center found out. And when you buy that chicken, think of this stat that the same center found in its survey. Arkansas poultry workers make, on average, approximately $13.84 an hour. That's about $29,000 a year, a little bit less. And even in a household with two adults making that wage, so let's say just under $58,000, that's well below the living wage for a family of four when you consider that in that non-metro south area, the living wage is considered $71,000. Let's say that again. So If the living wage in the non-metro south area, meaning in the rural south where these poultry plants are situated, if the living wage is $71,000, two adults making the wage of a poultry worker would only be making actually $57,584, under $58,000. So they would be living in poverty. Now, working in a poultry plant is among those ugly, brain-numbing, body-abusing, horrendous jobs out there. Workers have to process chickens, are you ready for this, at a blistering 140 birds per minute as they whiz by on the assembly line. And that's really what it is. It's an assembly line. And the repetitive motions they have to perform all day, which would be cutting the chickens, slicing the chickens, and hanging them up so as they whiz along the assembly line, they're then processed at the end, Those motions give them crippling injuries, such as carpal tunnel syndrome. And that's an affliction that no one seemed to talk about until it became a regular injury for the computer class digital worker. But that's been happening in the poultry industry for decades. These folks get chemical burns. And those are chemicals sprayed to make sure the chicken arrives all nice and bacteria-free on your plate. And these workers have respiratory problems from those chemicals. They get cuts and gashes from knives and cutting equipment. The wet floors that they have to walk on make them slip and fall, and that's how they injure themselves as well. Now, you can get a real sense of what these companies think about workers if you go to the website of one of the largest poultry processors in the country, Coke Foods. Now, I'll just point out, they're not connected at all to the odious Coke brothers that we're all so familiar with. They're a separate, independent company. At the section about corporate responsibility and practices, and you almost have to laugh about this if it wasn't so pathetic and sad, there is a long, detailed description about how the company treats its chickens, all humanely. There is not one word 
Not a single word in the section about corporate responsibility and practices about workers. As if that isn't enough, the industry's lobbyists, panting and excited about the lunatics running the Congress and the White House, and all those lunatics are happy to destroy the livelihoods of workers, they are pushing right now for a regulation that would speed up the poultry line even more. Yes, speed it up from 140 birds per minute to 175 birds per minute. Complete insanity. And so to talk about this, let's bring in Debbie Berkowitz, who is a senior fellow with the National Employment Law Project, and you can find NELP at nelp.org, terrific organization. Debbie is organizing opposition to this utterly crazy idea to change the regulations, and she does so from an incredibly long history and knowledge on the topic. Even before she served as a senior policy advisor at OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, she was OSHA's chief of staff actually from 2009 to 2013 under Barack Obama, she spent two decades working on worker safety and health programs in unions and in particular as safety and health director of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, which organizes in the poultry industry. And Debbie, before we talk about this fight that you're leading with lots of organizations on this awful change in regulation, which I previewed in the introduction to our discussion, since you have such a wide range of experience, both serving in the public sector, in OSHA, uh, in the Obama administration, and also your work within the labor movement, particularly the UFCW, give us a sense first of how difficult this industry is for workers, just as it is now. Well, that's a great question. You know, the poultry industry is huge. It processes 8.5 billion chickens a year. Poultry is now America's most popular meat. Wow. And your viewers should know that profits are soaring. It's, you know, the like Tyson Foods, who's the largest player, you know, they make an average of $461 million in pure profit um, just in three months out of a year that they have reported. Now, I think when most people think about the poultry industry, the thing they're most concerned about is the, uh, you know, condition of the chickens before they're slaughtered. And people don't really think about the condition um, of workers or how the workers are treated. And, you know, the truth is that poultry plants are one of the harshest environments in all of U.S. manufacturing. Wow. And by the way, that says a lot, given the, if you think about factories and people being killed in construction, that says a lot about how bad that is. No, that is true. I mean, I think certain construction jobs are incredibly dangerous, and construction can have more fatalities. But when it comes to worker injuries and crippling injuries and illnesses, poultry plants are almost twice as dangerous as any other U.S. manufacturing, and workers get sick at a rate seven times higher in the poultry plants than in, than in uh, all other industries. And explain now, let's get concrete down to the detail. I'm a worker, and I'm in one of these poultry plants, and you have this expertise. What is it like inside one of those plants? Over a quarter million workers in the industry in these plants stand shoulder to shoulder on both sides of long conveyor belts, most using scissors or knives in cold, damp, loud conditions, making the same forceful cuts or movements thousands and thousands of times a day to skin, pull, cut, debone, and package the chickens. The line is relentless. Some workers 
they handle birds at 40 birds per minute. Just wrap, that's per minute, just wrap your brain around how fast they work. It is a grueling work in poultry plants. Wow. And I assume it's so it's cold because they don't want those carcasses, if that's what they call them, uh, to spoil. So they have to be in these, is it sub-freezing or certainly sub, it's pretty bone chilling in there, right? It is bone chilling and workers have to wear protective layers of, of clothing. And that is because of food safety concerns. There is a part of the plant where the, um, and I think it's, you know, one of the harshest jobs in America. It's called the live hang where the chickens are coming off the trucks and they're being hung and shackled by their feet. Um, and these poor workers, you know, the chickens are, you know, can, uh, defecate on these workers and it's very hot. So where they, and then they go into slaughter. Where it's slaughtered, there aren't that many workers. Um, though it's very dangerous, but the bulk of the industry, the bulk of the workers are in the processing parts of the plant where it is cold. The uh, carcasses are put into um, a chiller where they're cooled down, and then the plants, uh, they're, you know, about, the, it's, it's almost like walking into your refrigerator. That's the wow. temperature in those plants. And so let's back up here for a second. You just mentioned something that actually harkened back to when I was very, very young. I, I had a summer job where part of it was at some agriculture area where there were, there was a chicken coop, and they rustled up the chickens, I guess, to ship them out. And I remember that when you walk in there, there's great panic uh, among the chickens, and so they defecate. And so when they bring all these chickens to this processing plant before they slaughter them, to your point that they defecate on the workers, it's because they're, there's like a frenzy, right? They're frightened. Well, yes. I think, you know, the, you know I do think they're frightened, and, um, uh, you know, and, uh, you know they, some, of the, some of the plants, they stun them right away. Some of the plants put gas on them to calm them down. Yeah. But in any case, you know, when I was at OSHA, we documented that some of the workers were, uh, you know, getting these infectious diseases that you get from fecal contamination. Mm, mm. Um, but again, you know, it is true in this industry, it's a, you know, consumers are right to put pressure on the industry to think about how they're treating mm-hmm. the workers, I mean, treating the animals, but you also need to think about how they're treating workers and you know, the case I want to make to you is that the poultry industry is engaged in a race to the bottom on labor standards. Yep. And I think you're right. I think most people are concerned about, is it organic? Is it, you know, free range? You know, what am I getting when I walk into that store and I pick up a chicken? But they're not thinking what's happening to workers. And that's why we're talking about this topic now. And so when they make all those cuts, and I think this is uh, perhaps the most crippling part of this job, they get, you know, we're used to getting this carpal tunnel syndrome when we work at computers in sort of offices. It's a very common thing because of the repetitive uh, motion. That's similar to what's happening to poultry workers, but much worse, right? Oh, yes. The rates in poultry plants of carpal tunnel syndrome and tendonitis as demonstrated Mm. by government studies where they actually gave workers medical exams can be 30 to 40% of the workers in a plant. Wow. Now, what happens, and I think this is really important to sort of talk about, is when workers get hurt, what we found at OSHA is they go to the first aid or nurse's station and say, I need, my hand hurts. It's mm. beginning to hurt. I need to see a doctor. They send them right back to the line, and they maybe they give them uh, Motrin or Tylenol, but over time, and OSHA actually cited one of the biggest companies for this, Pilgrim's Pride, but gave warning letters to other companies um, in, uh, in, in, in Alabama, in, in Delaware, and in other states that 
companies were just not providing workers any medical treatment because they didn't want them to report an injury so mm-hmm. that they can then, you know, tell their stakeholders, oh, I'm safe, I've had no reported injuries. And eventually what happens is the workers leave because they can't do the job because they get crippled and their injuries are made worse. And then they have no health insurance. So, you know, a lot of the communities have to pick up the cost of these sort of injured workers um, to provide them medical care sort of to, to, so they can go back to work. This is one of the few industries that we saw this in, in OSHA. This wasn't rampant in other industries. Mm-hmm. Now, besides the actual speed up and the things we talk about, the crippling industries, what has changed in terms of the other things that workers face, particularly as it relates to chemicals that they have to absorb? Well, in order for the companies to meet sort of new pathogen testing, which was part of the new rule in 2014 that they have to have show that they don't have like salmonella and other pathogens on their chickens before they go to market, they have increased the amount of chemicals used in the production of, of your like your chicken breast or your whole chicken, whereas it used to be uh, chickens after they were slaughtered were dipped in a chlorine bath to rid them of all chemicals, mm-hmm. I mean to rid them of all pathogens. But now... It's dipped. The chicken is repeatedly dipped and sprayed during the whole processing, you know, when the deboning lines and the chicken breast lines, so that workers are exposed now to these chemicals that are new. They don't have any safe levels that were uh, set by OSHA. Um, A lot of them are getting sick. OSHA has cited some companies for causing burns and other things among their workers. Um, And so in the end, you know, it's dangerous to workers, but luckily for consumers, the uh, chemical does dissipate before it gets to the market. But your point is that this, this is an important point that you just made. All these chemicals that they're now breathing in, in a sense, have never been tested. So they don't know if they're now being exposed to something that 10 years from now will give them cancer. Well, right. There's no safe levels. There's hardly been any testing. Uh, One of the things about these chemicals is they're very caustic. So right away, workers will tell you. I mean, all poultry workers will tell you, my eyes burn all the time. Mm -hmm. Some of them get skin burns. Um, And, uh, you know, OSHA's putting, or did at least under the Obama administration, put a lot of pressure on the poultry industry to enclose where these tanks are and these... uh, you know, big buckets of chemicals where the chicken just gets right dipped in so that workers aren't exposed. And I assume that what you described generally happens in poultry plants that are non-union. What percentage of the plants among the 250,000 workers, what percentage right now are unionized, roughly? That's a good good point. I think about a quarter are union now. Mm -hmm. You know, when I started... uh, working uh, for poultry workers way back in the late 70s, um, just sort of, you know, about an hour and a half from Washington in Harrisonburg, Virginia, there were all these poultry plants that were all union, and now none of them are union. So um, down there. So, yeah, it's been a real change. And uh, one other point on the unionization, then we'll go to this actual regulation that you're fighting. Uh, um, uh, It's not a mistake, I think, that lots of these poultry plants are in places like Georgia, Arkansas, and other states that have our right-to-work states and where it's harder to unionize. Is that a fair point? That's a totally fair point. This is an industry that really developed after World War II, and I think they methodically thought about where to get cheap labor, and they wanted to get, you know, a lot of the first workers in poultry plants just came right off the farms. They were sharecroppers, and then they came right into the poultry plants. So, you know, the states with the most plants are 
Georgia, Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to move now to this, what you're fighting. And I guess I have to say, and I'm sure you agree, I'm not shocked that this is happening in this particular administration and given who's controlling the Congress, that they're trying to make the situation which you describe, which is bad, even worse. Meaning we we just talked about how many chickens are processed right now, how fast the line goes, how cold it is, the repetitive industries that, that workers face, the fact that they usually don't get medical care, that 75% is not union. And here, there's now a petition to try to make it even worse. The current uh, standard is 140 birds per minute. That would be the line speed that these birds go through that workers have to uh, uh, address and to handle. And they want to increase it, meaning there's a petition by a congressman, Doug Collins, to increase the line to 175 birds per minute, which to me is just astounding. Yeah, no, we totally agree. And there would be real consequences to worker safeties. I mean, injuries would go way up, but also, I think, to food safety. I mean, you know, during the Obama administration, the USDA Food Safety Inspection Service, and they had worked on this a lot during the Bush administration, so it happened just as Obama became president, the USDA uh, decided that they're going to try to privatize most of the inspections and um, for food safety and take most of the inspectors out of the plants and let the company do it. And uh, because that would increase costs for the company, because then the company would now be required to do all these sort of pathogen testing and actually hire their own people to replace some of the food safety inspectors that were um, being pulled out of the plant, they didn't want to cause any cost to this industry. So they said, well, you can run your lines faster and have each worker work harder, and there we'll squeeze more profit from them, and, uh, you know, and, and you'll make more money. But it was clear, I think, to the White House that this would have serious consequences to workers once the agency proposed this. And so in 2000, uh, I think it was 14. Uh, when USDA finally proposed its final rule modernizing poultry food safety inspection, where poultry inspectors are being pulled out of these plants, they did not allow a line speed increase at all. And that was a real victory for workers, and um, we're, you know, we're very grateful for that. Right. So a general point that I've made in previous podcasts is that the safety and health regime generally in the U.S. is really pretty poor. And my friend and your colleague, Peg Seminario, has often pointed out that at the AFL-CIO, how long it would take to just have every workplace inspected once just to make sure people are safe. And it would take, I don't know, sometimes 134 years or some astronomical number. And here they're proposing to make, they've essentially made the situation worse. And on the line speed, you previously mentioned how bad it is. And I was looking at the letter you wrote to the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue. And here's just a statistic that blew my mind is that 76 percent of the workers in a particular study had evidence of nerve damage in their hands and wrists. And that's at the current line speed. So what they're proposing is to make that even worse. That is true. Um, even, and I have to tell you, when USDA, that's the agency, USDA's Department of Agriculture, who governs food safety in 
poultry, as well as their job is also try to market poultry. So you could see how this is an agency that's like the fox guarding the hen house yep. when it comes to, to food safety. But they don't really ever consider worker safety when they do anything. And, you know, the Obama administration said you can't propose to possibly increase food safety on the backs of workers and decrease worker safety. And even in the final rule that USDA published in 2014 that now Republican congressmen are now petitioning USDA to ignore, um, it, it, they said very clearly in that rule that we understand there are serious consequences and hazards in the poultry industry, and these could be directly related to line speed. And before any increase in line speed, there needs to be a lot of study being done. There is no studies that have been done, and in, you know, instead, I think the industry went to uh, Republican congressmen, and they're probably going to go to USDA soon and say, listen, uh, who cares about worker safety? Let's just go and redo this rule and uh, increase line speed so, you know, we can line our pockets. But who's paying the cost for all that? You know, I mean, consumers think about cheap chicken. But they're crippling workers, workers, you know, from all different races um, who, you know, really work in back-breaking work to put food on our table. Mm -hmm. And I want to sort of put a little, if I can, a bow around this, which is your underscoring that this both threatens food safety because of the speed up, up for obvious reasons. If it's faster, it's harder to make sure that all of this is done cleaner. You just can't keep up with that line speed. And it's crippling actual people, and it's making it impossible to do a job without having uh, certainly career-ending and job-ending injuries that people have to address. That's that's totally correct. That's exactly... um what's happening and people need to think about that. And since you use that great metaphor as, as we as we start to wrap up here, the fox guarding the chicken house, which I guess is so appropriate to this industry. Um, I actually, before we came on the air, I had a chance to go to opensecrets.com, uh, opensecrets.org it might be actually, which is does a great job at collecting and monitoring the corruption, the legalized corruption that we have in the country in terms of influencing legislation. And I just pulled up the top 20 recipients to the poultry industry, and 18 out of 20 of them are Republicans. There are two Democrats there, but uh, but of the 20 top people getting money in the tens of thousands of dollars you have both in the senate and the house 18 out of 20 are republicans so it's not just that they're influencing the usda directly they're going to members of congress and buying this vote yes i think the system especially now under this president is completely rigged to lining the pockets of big business corporate america um who, you know, sees a little bit of a green light to, well, we may not have to obey safety rules. I mean, after all, uh, OSHA can't, won't get into our plants. Uh, it'd take them 150 years to get into every, you know, to every workplace under their jurisdiction once. And, you know, I have to tell you, because of the Trump administration uh, hiring freeze, in many OSHA offices, especially in the South, where these poultry plants are, they are down like to half the number of inspectors. So even fewer workers are going to be able to rely on OSHA to help them here. Is there any doubt in your mind that if this regulation is approved and they increase this to 25%, that the injury rate will just skyrocket in these plants and people really suffer just really grievous injuries at much higher rates? 
We have no doubt that more workers will get injured. And, you know, workers could even get killed because it's a, this is a dangerous industry. And this would be a terrible thing to happen. And because of that, 40 organizations came together, including civil rights groups, you know, labor groups, um, public health groups, groups that never really got involved in all this uh, worker safety before. And there's even an employer in the list of groups that signed on to the letter because this would be totally devastating to workers, and it's unnecessary. I have to just end with one thing, and that is that USDA did a pilot of this for 20 years, and most of the plants ran their lines even slower than they're allowed to, to, to uh, run them right now because they couldn't run them faster because they were injuring so many workers and there's such high turnover. Many of these plants have 100% turnover a year. They hire and fire 1,000 workers a year because it's such backbreaking work. So this would be really just, uh, you know, one more thing uh, to show that, you know, you know, this president and this administration doesn't really care about working people. Now, a couple of weeks ago, the world marked the United Nations International Youth Day. Now, well, the word marked is a little bit of a stretch. Not a whole lot of people actually pay attention to these declared days. But it does help slap me upside the head and bring into our conversation something related to that day. And in this case, check this statistic out. Around the world, there are roughly 290 million young people who don't have jobs. That's 290 million young people are unemployed. Now think of that. That's the future generations of the world. And you add to that number another 150 million who are working but are poor largely because the work that they have is in what is known around the world as the quote-unquote informal economy, which is just a fancy term for an economy where all the rules benefit the boss. They can screw you without a second thought. You have no promise of a job from one day to the next. And forget about any health care pension. That's just a dream. So basically, if you think about those numbers, we are dooming generations of young people to poverty. And many of those young people have parents who have been screwed as well, especially in the recent economic crisis that put tens of millions of people out of work and robbed them of savings and retirement. Sometimes that older generation had a little bit of money saved away that they might pass on to the younger generation, but that no longer exists. So these young people are starting out, basically, many of them, millions of them, with zero. This is the rotten economic system, the so-called free market that feeds the parasites of the one-tenth of one percent, the plutocrats, who in the U.S. are the ones who buy the Congress so they can abuse, for example, the poultry workers that we just talked about. But there are some young people who are fighting back, and they are heroes in our world, and one of those is Jane Najoki. Jane has been working globally as the president of the Young Workers Committee of the International Trade Union Confederation, that's the ITUC in Africa, 
And in addition, as a youth leader, which you'll hear when I speak to Jane, her fight to become a youth leader in her home country's Kenya's Central Organization of Trade Unions. And in fact, Jane now joins us on the line from Kenya. And Jane, before we get into the organizational work, the, the important work you do for the young people who are jobless, tell us a little bit about you, about you, Jane, and what kind of work you have done before you got into this work. Before I joined Trade Union, uh, I, I used to work, and I'm still working with uh, an energy sector called Kenya Power and Lightning Company here in Kenya. And what was your, um, what's your wait. job there? What was your job there? My job entails uh, support, support in IT, information technology, where I'm involved in a system, and making sure that the system works, making sure that the computer are on point. Uh, that is the kind of work that I do at uh, my organization. And is, is this a power organization that generates electricity? When you said it sounded like it was an energy company, that means it's an electric company or another kind of power company? Exactly, it's an uh, energy sector. Uh, we, we, we don't generate, where I work, we don't generate, but we supply. So where I'm working is we supply electricity to domestic workers to, 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 to at large, the whole of Kenya, that is what we do as Kenya Power. And so it's, it's important if you want to have power, your job is important because the, the, the technology, the, the computers have to work, right? Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Actually, people don't understand that uh, energy sector needs computer. And right now, it's technology which is controlling everything. Yes. So I can sit down and control your power wherever the control center is. So technology is still important, very important when it comes even to, to power generation, power supply, and all that. So how old are you now? I'm 31 years old. Ah, awesome. And at what point did you decide that uh, it was important for you to get involved in the trade union movement? What led you to do that? Um, one way or another, as um, ladies, we always talk of uh, 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 people discriminating you. Maybe they feel that um, you're not capable or you are capable, but they feel you are a threat to something. So what led me to join trade union? Uh, it's uh, the frustration that I undergone at work. Mm. I, I, I underwent a lot of frustration. Uh, transfer being that time I was very young, at early 25 there and you get to get transferred to other places that they know that you can't even sustain yourself from that place mm. so that time i went after the transfer and even being sucked at work for some few days then you go back i realized that um i needed to fight for some people who their voice can't be heard so your experience was both as a woman who was taken advantage of, just abused by, I assume, men who were the supervisors or in charge, and also they just decided wherever they wanted to put you based on what they wanted, and you had no power over that. Exactly. The, the supervisors, the, the, the bosses who wanted, they thought that uh, because I'm a woman, because I'm a young lady who is growing up and who is coming up, they can take advantage of my situation and uh, now convince me what they want them to, what they want in my life. But then I decided I'm going to stand still. I won't um, engage them and uh, let them frustrate me until the end. Unfortunately, I, I overcome all that. And uh, that is where I am today. And so naturally you then looked around and you said, we need to be, have a stronger voice. And 
is that what then got you involved in the union, both in the ITUC and also in your trade union there in Kenya? Okay, initially I didn't know that um, I can lead the way somebody can grow up and you know you don't know that uh, you can lead a massive of people. Right. That is how I was. Uh, but uh, in that process of my frustration, I really wanted to quit my job. Then one friend of mine came and approached me and told me there was a vacant, there was an election in 2012 in the union. Mm-hmm. And by that time when I was undergoing all that, uh, I didn't feel that I can go to any person in union and support me. I had that feeling that uh, it's only me who can support myself. That is the only thing that I was feeling. And uh, when I was approached, I was told that uh, you are a leader and you need to vie for this position. So that is how I started. And I, I asked, what are my roles? And they told me, you need to fight for the people. And that is the time I realized I've come a long way. I've been frustrated. And uh, I can see so many people being frustrated because they don't have a voice. Why can't me join the union as a leader and see how far we, I can go with it and see if I can be able, even me myself, to get myself after the frustration that uh, I was undergoing still at that time, if I can get other people who I know, they were undergoing the same same um, frustration at work. And how were you received in the union in terms of both as a woman and as a young person, you show up and you said, I, I think I want to run for this office. Was it even difficult in the union to be able to be recognized as a woman, as a leader? Oh, oh yes. I was trying to be, yeah. I, was, I was trying to be generous and subtle when I asked that question. <laughs> oh, yeah. actually it was difficult because my opponent thought that, um, you know, first of all, everybody knows that trade union is for old people. Trade union is for men generated uh, organization. Mm. So when I came in, people were asking me, what are you going to do with men? That is a man dominated uh, uh, thing. So just leave it. But me, I said, I want to be where the men are because I want to fight for the people's rights. So what I did is I got a lot of, um, my opponent was a man. They tried to talk uh, uh, so many things that uh, as a young person, what as a young lady, what are you going to do to the union? But then I remember immediately I was elected. I was even recognized by my boss. Even told me to stand up so that uh, I can get some claps from the members because he didn't believe that a young person, that time I was 28 years old, that can come and join union and become a leader. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was, uh, it was that, that is the time I realized there, there are no young people, young women in leadership. And it was true. It was, I was the only person who was young in my union, even now. But at least now we've, I've tried my best to make sure that ladies who feel and I can see they have the leadership roles, I can at least make them come on board. And uh, if at all we have election, they be among the, the, the team. And you know, it, 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 you may know this by now, this is very common around the world. It's certainly true in the United States. It was yeah. certainly true for sure until a few years ago, but it was always true in the United States that it was usually white men and mostly mm-hmm. men and older men who were leaders of all the unions. And even in the middle levels of union leadership, there weren't a lot of women, uh, women of color. There, there weren't young people for sure. And I think that's one of the problems in the U.S. labor movement that it's facing now, that there were so few young people involved 
back when they had finished, you know, their initial school and they were first coming to work, they didn't even know, they don't even know what a union really is because they were not, they were not being welcomed into the union. Exactly. The same, same way here. But uh, right now I can say that uh, things are changing right now because even if you check the union uh, leadership right now, you can't miss a young person at the top level. And uh, I can say that here in Kenya, we are, we are getting support from the national uh, office, that is the Central Organization of Trade Union, plus the affiliate level where we are coming from. Because were it not for the support of our leaders who are still in office right now, we couldn't be where we are today. We couldn't be talking of unions and uh, even advocating for workers' rights. So right now I can say things have changed, not like uh, some decades ago, where we used to know that uh, union belongs to all people, union belongs to those people who will never leave union until they die. This time around things have changed, and uh, we are really getting support from our elders. So let's look, and your part, the leadership position that you have is in the Central Organization of Trade Unions in Kenya. And you also have this role, that a very important one, that you're the president of the Young Workers Committee of Africa in the IUTUC, which I explained in the introduction. So let's look at the, the global situation is just astounding. It's shocking how many young people are jobless, 290 million young people are jobless. Then even those who are working are working for substandard wages, 150 million of them are working for substandard wages. And how do you look at that and what you're thinking about how to change that? Employment, thank you for that. Employment is an, it's a global issue. Mm-hmm. And um, right now, everybody's talking about, any government in the office is talking about how they can make sure that they have employed maybe 50%. But on my point of view is um, things are changing, as I said, and um, we need to now think of informal sector. When I talk of informal sector, that is where you'll see that majority of young people are are based. But unfortunately, we still think that informal sector is not part of the economy. But when we think of, all my part of thinking is, if at all we engage the informal sector, these are the people who have gone to school, they have their own papers, but unfortunately they can't get work. And these are the people who drive the economy. So how can we bring them on board? And let's explain to my listeners, when people in the, around the world internationally speak about the informal sector, they're talking usually about what's known here in the U.S. as contingent labor or part-time, basically people that have no steady income, they don't get a regular paycheck, they go from job to job, and they certainly don't have any kinds of pension or health care usually, right? Yes. Okay. And that makes it very hard to make a living to, to, for obvious reasons. Yes. And the majority of these people are young uh, people who just came out of school because right now we don't have work. So what they need to do is to start their own businesses. But unfortunately, the, the, the informal sector is not organized like the way formal sector is. And right now what I'm thinking and uh, I've been thinking is how can we get the informal sector organized. If we get the informal sector organized, then everything will fall into place because the informal sectors, these are person who has started business, some of them. It's like uh, you start maybe a small shop, uh, you employ another person, that employment, so, so even if it's uh, informally, 
It's, you don't need to sit in the office. You've employed somebody. That means these people, they drive our economy, but they're unorganized. That is why they're still in informal sector. So the only way that we can bring them on board is to try and see how can we bring them on board and organize the informal sector so that they can feel that they are there part of the team of the only organization or any government organization where they can drive the economy. And the challenge is quite big, I would think, for two reasons. And I'll start with the first one, which is most um, governments, most certainly major corporations or even smaller businesses, they're they're not interested in helping people organize or letting people organize. They want to oppose it because they benefit from this informal sector, this informal economy, because more profits go into the pockets of the CEOs, right? Sure. So how do you, how do you confront that challenge? You know, uh, information is power. Mm. And uh, if you don't have information, definitely you will never, you you don't know what is happening. Right. And uh, when, when you look at, uh, I can give an example of Kenya. When you look at the informal sector in Kenya, sometimes you feel these people, you can see them, they're frustrated. And uh, because these are the people who, the kind of jobs that they do, it's not sustainable. But at the end of the day, they need to sustain this, themselves with the same. And the kind of jobs that they do, these are the kind of the, uh, profits and uh, tax that the government get and they drive the economy. So it's, 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 it's a government uh, thing for sure. And uh, the government will make sure that they, they want to, they want to frustrate them because at the end of the day they can't reach that uh, simple person who is seated selling maybe mango or juice on the street to to, to earn a living. So my, my thinking is, if at all, as as I always think as a trade unionist, as a trade unionist, we always know that uh, we we are an organization and we represent members. And uh, when we represent members, these are the people who are organized. How then can we bring them on board? Because it's not an easy job, yes, but uh, one you, you start from one step to another for you to achieve what you want. It's a milestone, yes, but uh, you need to start from one step to, to achieve another thing. And probably people are a little more receptive, particularly young people, because to your message because they leave school or they enter into the economy at let's say they're 17, 18, 19, and they have all these dreams and hopes that they'll be able to have a family or maybe just live on themselves and have a decent income and they can't find that. So it becomes very frustrating and they're looking for a way, a, a path to try to solve that. So you're there with the information and hope, and by a, being a young person yourself, you're very welcoming to them in that way. Yes, that is very true. Uh, and uh, it's always frustrating when you meet uh, the young people on the street. Uh, they are frustrated one, especially everybody is frustrated when to be with the government that uh, they're not given attention the way they're supposed to be given. There's no job, there are no creation of jobs, unfortunately. So, and I know that is a global, uh, as you said earlier, that is a global, global problem that is yeah. everywhere. The issue of unemployment. I can add on that the issue of uh, casualization, where you get uh, empl- some organizations they're employing uh, young, especially the majority of them who are employed are young people, the age of 20 to 35 years old, and they're employed on a casual le- level. 
And this definitely won't, you won't be stable as you grow up as a young person who is growing up because you don't know if next month I'll get that salary. You don't know if next month I'll, get, I'll, go, I'll go to work and send back home because it's a casual. It's a casual job where you go today and they account your days. So that is another problem that us as young people we are undergoing because right now everything is going into privatization and casualization, all the organization, because they, they, they want to work with the big organization where they can save some money, not but not to employ majority of young people who are coming out. And the second thing I was going to add what to this that is a particular challenge is that, and it's kind of where who you are, it's that lots of the pressure and lots of the harassment and the exploitation is aimed at women, particularly young women, because not only do they have the usual frustrations that men do, but then there's the issue of sexual harassment and the way in which they're exploited as women, especially because of the large um, growing sector of domestic workers. Yeah, the issue of sexual harassment, that has been there and is still there. We can't assume that, especially the young women. Me in particular, yes, because before I came, as I said earlier, I joined trade union and I stayed that uh, I want to fight for the workers' right. Is I was I underwent the same same thing, sexual harassment, and you find that um, majority of ladies who have power and who can grow in power and who can really fight for people's uh, rights, they can't come out clearly because they are afraid because they're threatened. Right. It's not easy to come out clearly and say, this is my right as a young person, as a young lady. It's never that easy. So majority of girls outside there, they are frustrated, but they can't come out and say that, uh, yes, I'm being frustrated because of this and this and this. And some of them, they are promised so many things and, then, and maybe employment. You're promised that uh, you're going to be employed if you do this and this. And that is sexual harassment, mm. which uh, so many ladies, they, 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 they are... They are victims of sexual harassment, and but they don't want to come out clearly to say. But part of the meetings that I go and uh, part of the trainings that I go, I always tell ladies, uh, talk it out. That person will respect you and uh, you're going to, to go far because with you keeping quiet, it won't help. Uh, it won't help. So they feel more comfortable, obviously, if they're in a in a environment where it's women talking to women about their situation, and that gives them more sense of being heard and then also the power to then move forward. Yes, yes, like uh, domestic workers. That, that is a, section, a, a place where you, feel, you, you find a lot of sexual harassed uh, ladies uh, because one, they earn minimum wage, some of them, they want to get money because maybe some of them, they have families outside there. So most of the meetings that maybe you attend as a, as, a, as a for domestic workers and any other meeting and one of them comes, the stories that you hear, they're just frustrating. So what we, what we want to do and uh, the plans that we have right now is uh, if we get uh, time and if we get funds and if we get um, that opportunity to hold meeting, just the even closed meeting doors, because that is a time that you'll see ladies. Ladies like sharing if get, they get the opportunity, but if they don't, they won't be able to, to, be, to be listened to. So we have, that is the plans that we have, that we have uh, as an indoor meetings for regionally for ladies. And uh, at that meeting, you're able to get a lot of things which are happening and uh, even creating awareness to them that uh, 
we are trying to make them leaders of tomorrow because tomorrow is the future. And so my last question would be, would be, as a person who's 31 years old, do you feel optimistic that you will be successful, that when you look back, let's say 10 years from now, that the situation will improve and more people will be inside the union? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm optimistic that um, through whatever I'm doing right now, through my sacrifice, because this entails a lot of sacrifice, a lot of your time, and you end up not even doing your own personal things because of sacrifice, because of seeing somebody else suffering and you don't want him to, to suffer. So my impact from now and since I started, I, I can feel it and I can see it that uh, when you associate yourself with other people and they say, Jane, I like to be like you when I, when I like some years to come and you feel uh, appreciated and you feel humbled. I feel that uh, whatever I'm doing right now, that uh, it's going to be impacted so many, to so many ladies outside there, even young people and young men that uh, they are ready to listen and they're ready to work uh, together so that uh, we can drive the agenda together. now it's the time you all are waiting for. It's our Robber Baron segment of the week. And this week, our Robber Baron is the chief executive officer and president of Pilgrim's Pride Corporation, a fellow named William Lavette. Pilgrim is actually a Brazilian-owned American food company, and it's currently the largest chicken producer in the United States and Puerto Rico. And of course, I picked a chicken producer to go with our previous segment on the disastrous poultry industry, the terrible conditions that workers face in that industry. And frankly, I could pick almost any CEO of any of the major poultry producers, the ones that process the chickens, I could pick any of those CEOs as a robber baron because of how horribly they treat their workers. Now, Lovett made almost $3 million in total compensation, actually $2.9 million, and of that total, $1 million was received in salary, and $1.5 million was received as a bonus, and you might think that perhaps, as you'll hear in a second, that bonus was received because of how much the company did, in fact, abuse the workers. And Pilgrim is emblematic. It's a standout, and I mean that obviously sarcastically, among those reporting large numbers of severe workplace injuries in both the chicken and meat processing industry. Now, out of more than 14,000 companies reporting injuries to OSHA in the United States, when I say 14,000 companies, I'm talking about the entire economy. That would include Walmart, Amazon, Apple. You can think of all the big companies that come to mind. Pilgrim ranked sixth out of all those 14,000 in reporting severe injuries. At Pilgrim's Pride, the company reported that 51 workers suffered severe injuries. And that doesn't even include data from states like Iowa, North Carolina, Maryland, and Virginia because they actually fall in their reporting under the state Occupational Safety and Health Administration agencies. There's a state level and a federal level. The 51 workers that were injured were just those reported to the federal agency. 
And remember that in the podcast segment about the poultry industry, I pointed out that lots of workers are told, don't report injuries, go back to the line, you're not going to get a doctor, they're forced to go back to work. And the reason for that is the company doesn't want to report those injuries to OSHA, to the government. And why? In 2016 alone, OSHA fined Pilgrim more than $328,000. Now, that's a cost of doing business, relatively speaking, to the company. But you have to find a lot of bad behavior to even get fined by OSHA at those levels. And because of the way Pilgrim treats its workers, because, as I just said, it ranks sixth out of 14,000 companies in the entire economy in terms of fines on safety and health, on the abuse of workers. Because of that treatment, William Levette is the robber baron of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my amazing guest, Debbie Berkowitz of NELP. You can again see NELP's work at NELP.org. I want to thank Jane Najoki from the Kenya Youth Leadership Contingent, the youth leader from Kenya's Central Organization of Trade Unions. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Please do become a subscriber to the podcast. You can do that at workinglife.org. Click on the podcast tab. And now, if you can, become a supporter, financial supporter of the podcast so we can continue bringing you this amazing information every single week. Look forward to having you back next week and have a great week.